it's a limped pot. I'm in the big blind. I look down at pocket sevens and I check and it comes seven, three, three. So there's only like eight euros in the middle, whatever small blind checks. I check now almost a hundred percent sure this game is rigged. And all of a sudden it just goes bare, re-raise all in. I'm in the big blind of sevens, it's seven, three, three on the board. And I just fold, just fold pocket sevens. And it goes all in, all in. Hi, and welcome. It's Runchex, and you're listening to my podcast where I explore the topics around what it takes to become a great poker player with various interesting people from in and around poker industry. If you're enjoying the podcast, you might be interested to sign up to my weekly newsletter where I deliver my key takeaways and ideas from each latest episode. Go look it up on runchexpodcast.com. Today, I'm talking to Henry Kilbane. He's a funny guy. He does a great job providing commentary for some of the biggest poker events in the world. And I want to say we went a bit off the rails on this one. We covered some crazy stories from live poker that we've experienced. We talked about private games, rigged games, rounders lifestyle, behind the scenes of poker entertainment and so much more. This conversation goes from funny to dark to educational and many shades in between. I really enjoyed this and I hope you do too. Awesome. Thanks thanks for joining me today. Um, really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I've uh, been looking forward to it all week, actually. I'm not going to lie. I've been awesome. thinking about awesome. What I'm glad to hear it. And uh, you know what? And it's actually funny. I, I want to point it out sort of on record that we talked an hour before we started recording <laughs> just because there were so many things to cover. And uh, you know, some of those things we should have actually recorded that they, they are fun, but we might revisit them in our conversation right now. Yeah, I mean, when, when, I, when, I sit, when you sit down with, with someone like yourself... Yeah, it's it's hard not to just jump into a conversation, man. You know, you've got a lot of interesting things to talk about. So uh, I'm not surprised that we spoke for an hour before going live, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, well. Anyway, listen, Henry. So I think there are so many topics we can cover today, right? And um, I think before we jump into some of the other stuff, uh, let's talk about you a bit, right? For some of the viewers who don't know you, like we let's say Matt, because that's like a virtual COVID kind of meeting environment of meeting on uh, <laughs> online. We did a few commentary gigs together for uh, Run It Once and the Galphon Challenge, right? And uh, you have some fascinating stories to tell, right? So that's going to be real interesting. But maybe tell in a few words, like for people who don't know you, who is Henry? Who is Henry? Wow, man, we're going deep straight away. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah my, my name's Henry Kilbane, uh, also known as the GTO commentator. Uh, I've been doing commentary in the poker world now for what are we midway through 2020? Um, about two and a half years, I kind of fell into commentary in the sense that I just went to a, a small live festival um, as a poker player and the media, uh, the lady that was in charge of the the, you know, the social media that did a small interview for me and then they invited me back to do some commentary. And yeah, man, I mean, my life just, just basically changed overnight by going to do commentary for them for this small 
one-two cash game that they were running in London. And I was still living in the UK at the time. Um, and then within like the space of, what, eight months, uh, I received some like phone calls from, from Unibet, from WSOP. And I was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, like I can barely beat the 2-5 in my local casino and WSOP want me to come and cover this 100K. Like what's going on, man? Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a roller coaster a couple of years. It, honestly, I still feel like, you know, someone's going to pinch me one day and I'm going to wake up and I'm still going to be grinding one, two in my local casino like I, I did for so long. But yeah, I, I play uh, Poly Omaha uh, for a living. Um, I guess like low stakes life, uh, five, five, 10, 10, and uh, occasionally shot take, you know, the, the 25, 25, 50 game if it's really good. Um, and yeah, that's, that's me, man. You know, traveling the world, playing poker and, and doing commentary and just trying to enjoy life as much as possible. Mm. I find it funny that... Uh... And it's so often it happens that way that you basically got sort of accidentally into the commentary gig and you love it. Lucky, right? lucky, lucky is the yeah. Word. I, I, I've ran so well in the sense that you know, right place, right time, met the right people who, you know, especially for the uni bet. Um, and the, the Unibet live events and the WSOP Europe events, that wasn't me going to them and like pitching myself as a commentator. That was people that had already established themselves as respected poker pros in the industry vouching for me without me even knowing. So with the, with the Unibet ambassadors, um, uh, shout out to David Lappin and Dara Okani, I'd only met them once um, at a small event in Bratislava and you know we had a couple of drinks had a really nice conversation they were you know people that I wanted to you know get to that level of um in terms of like poker and what they were doing in the industry and then the people that were involved in running WSOP Europe were like oh hey can you guys recommend any commentators and Dara was like oh yeah there's this young kid from the UK Henry Kilbane um he's covered a couple of events for us at Unibet call him in and I just got the phone call um, to come and cover the World Series. And again, it just comes down to luck and, and people, you know, vouching for me when they didn't have to. Mm. Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah. Lucky. Well, you know, lucky, you kind of make your own luck. You know, yeah. it's, that's, that's the thing. And like, let's face it, everybody is in the poker industry at some point if they got successful in any shape or form, there's luck involved, right? And it's sure. just more acute in, in our world than in, in many other professions. But even though, like, I think we're going to talk quite a bit about the commentary gigs, because I think it's, at least it's fascinating for me, you know, to get a sneak peek about behind the scenes and how you guys doing this, you know, because you, of course, commentated some pretty big events, uh, like WSLP. Did you do, you did WSLP, right? Or... Am I yeah, the, you the, did. Covered the entire WSOP Europe, um, right? WPT, Pipe Poker Lives. I don't, I don't want to miss anyone. Right. <laughs> Obviously, Red Runner was Scalp on Challenge, um, but yeah, covered some some very prestigious events that you know. Two years ago, if you had told me that I would be the person in the booth calling the action when you know I've grown up over the last well, I'm 25 now. 
the last 12 years listening to commentary and watching poker um, that I would be the one that people are going to be listening to. I, I just like, no, don't, you're <laughs> bullshitting me kind of thing. You know, it's just not yeah. going to happen. And we're definitely going to dig into that, right? And sneak peek behind the curtain and all that stuff. But before we go okay. anywhere there, I want to... I want you to tell the story about your game in New York because I remember we were doing the commentary <laughs> on Galfon Challenge and you told the story and I was like, what the hell was going on through your mind? And I think it sort of adds a little something to the man behind the microphone when when you realize like okay this this guy <laughs> did some things you know saw some things in the poker world and uh, we're lucky to have you here sort of thing yeah it's like how did you get shot basically yeah, yeah, basically uh, yeah <laughs> so that was actually pretty much the start of my professional poker career um i had been playing, you know, one, two, trying to build a role and failing miserably on several occasions due to, you know, poor bankroll management. Um, but I believe that was, I'd have to double check Facebook, I believe that was 2016, summer of 2016. So I was 21 at the time, just turned 21. Um, and went on a road trip with a close friend of mine around the East Coast of America. And had about 10K to my name. Um, Do I have 10K? Yeah, I had, had, had about 10K to my name. And this is where 10K at the time was a point that I had never got to before. You know, I, I'd got to like 2K, 3K and, and, you know, gone broke again. But 10K was the first real bankroll, if you will. Um, and I actually went to New York with no intention to play poker. Um, you know, it was a road trip. Um, you know, I'd never been to New York, Boston, some of the other cities that we that we visited. And the Airbnb host that we were staying with in oh, what's the what's the area called? God, I should know this. Anyway, the, the area that we were staying in, we stayed with an Airbnb host, and obviously, you know, he was asking us like who, who we are, well, we did a really nice guy. And uh, my friend was like, a, she's like a singer and a music teacher and a, and a dancer. And I was like, oh, well, I'm a professional poker player. And he was like, oh, really? It's like, I, um, I know some like famous game that my friend runs. You know, it's, a, it's a small game. It's like a deep stacked one, three game, but it plays like a five, 10, you know, everyone buys in for like 2k. Um, a couple of famous people have been to it. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, you know, like shoot, shoot a message. You know, we're here for a week. Um, if I can get in, then great. You know, if nothing comes of it, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. So a couple of days go by and uh, he's like, yo, I got you a seat to this game. It uh, starts at 7 p.m. tonight. <laughs> and uh, he's like, I've, I've given your contact. Do you mind like me giving you your contact details to the host? I was like, yeah, sure. So you know, a few hours pass and I get a text message from, you know, uh, some random number. It's like, come and uh, let's meet at, you know, 6.30 on 41st. Well, I, I can't even remember the name of the streets in New York, but it's me on the corner. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm there with, you know, my entire life row in my, in my back pocket and walking around the streets of, you know, downtown New York, um, 
just standing on the corner, like looking around, looking around, like seeing if do I notice anyone? Is anyone like approaching me? And I get like my phone starts ringing, and uh, so I'm like looking around even more like, to see if like, I can see someone on the phone to, trying to contact me. And yeah, like looking back, man, I'll, t- I'll tell you about the actual game in a minute. But looking back, I mean, come on, dude, it's just one of the dumbest things I've ever done. You know, I'm in a city that I don't know anyone. I've got my life roll in my back pocket. I'm getting contacted by this unknown number. You know, like, oh, uh, I'll meet you on the corner of this street. And it turns out, you know, like, uh, like my Airbnb host had said that the game was, you know, a very well-run game. Um, you know, a couple of famous people would, you know, come through from time to time. But it was in that game that I met a couple of players um, that were telling me about other games. And this is where it just goes from, you know, this level of stupidity. And I'm like, you can't break that. And I'm like, you know what, let's just go up to this level of stupidity. <laughs> and, you know, they're like, oh, if you're, in, if you're here for a while, you know, we only run this game once a week, but there are still, you know, there's a few, a few games <laughs> run by some local gangs. And <laughs> so I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I ran really well in that game. I increased my bankroll by like 25%. So now I've got like 12 and a half. I'm like, yeah, these, you know, these games in New York, you know, no one can play online. These games are really good. Let's, let's go check out this other game that these boys have been telling me about. And I just remember it. It was like a scene out of Rounders without exaggerating. It's Chinatown. The hustle and bustle of New York, it's like 11 p.m. at night. I've got 12K in my pocket and I'm walking to this location that I've been told the game runs. And you get given a code by the the agents of the game. So I'm assuming, you know, like they get a cut out of the rake or whatever by like sending people. Um, so he's like, yeah, go to this address. There's a door with loads of graffiti on it. You know, there's a gate with loads of graffiti on it. Walk through and take the elevator up to the third floor. It only goes up to the third floor. You have to get out and take the stairs up two flights to get to where this fucking game is run. So I'm like, yeah, man. Okay, cool. So I go through the gate with loads of graffiti. All the red flags are there to like, Henry, listen, like you're going to die in there, man. <laughs> and uh, so go, go up the flight of steps and there's like two security cameras outside this big metal gate. This metal gate is basically advertising, you know, stay the fuck out of this place like for normal civilians. So that, that's what that gate signaled to me. So I give it a tap on the door and, you know, like, there's, you can hear that there's a there's another security door behind it, mate. Two big, beefy New York guys just like come through shoulder to shoulder. I'm six foot four. I'm a big guy. You know, I'm tall. These guys were like overshadowing me, and they're like, "Who sent you?" And I'm like, "Oh, uh, I just like get my phone out. I'm like, oh, his name's uh, his name's Mick. It's like Mick sent you. He's like, yeah, for the the one two game." okay, come through. So I go through and they're still like standing behind me. There's like this shady office desk with like some chips on it. There's smoke because everyone's like smoking inside. And uh, he's like, oh, who, who sent you? I'm like, oh, it's Mick. Uh, Mick sent me. He's like, what's the code? And I like, gave him like the, the code number that, that he'd given me to like authorize me to basically prove that, you know, I wasn't a fed, obviously, on the underground, underground games in, 
uh, in New York or illegal. And then it was fine. You know, it was absolutely fine. So, like, oh, cool. How much do you want to buy in for, man? I was like, oh, 300. They give him like 300. That gives me some chips. And then they like take you through the other metal door that was in the, the office, go through like these velvety curses. It reminded me out of like, like a 1930s jazz club or something. And you walk through and everyone's like smoking cigars. There's like three tables. There's waitresses. There's just like a bunch of money. And it, it was actually really cool. But the experience of like getting there in the first place and still going through with it, um, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not the brightest thing I've ever done in my life, that's for sure. But yeah, what a bit of money. Um, went to cash out, cashed out fine. Got a taxi back to the Airbnb, and I'm, I'm here to live the tale. But um, uh, to tell the tale, but it, it definitely could have gone differently. I mean, let's be honest. We, we, we've heard some shady shit in the past yeah, in games like that. <laughs> Absolutely. But like you're going through all of this, right? You just anonymous numbers, you have well mix sent to you, you have a just a number or whatever that proves something, right? Yeah. Probably tells them <laughs> is it worth killing you or not. Uh, but at any point did you feel like okay, I should just turn back? Yeah. The why didn't you turn back? The two because I was at the door. So the two security cameras, and th this door looks something like out of a horror movie. You know, the, the door was specifically designed to deter people from, you know, uh, not poker players. It was people that know the, knew the game weren't going to be deterred by it because they knew that the game was there. But mm. this door was just for random people, people in the building, I think, to just leave us alone kind of thing. I remember standing there and just like, hesitating before knocking on the door you know, got two cameras either side and i'm like shit man is this a meth lab or is this a poker game <laughs> like this <laughs> you know, the, the the level of security that you had to go through to, to just get to this this room and then obviously with the code um I, i'm assuming that the code that was sent is there for a reason and it's that police were obviously gonna hear rumors about games running yeah yeah of course and they're going to try and you know work their their way in, and the code is designed to be given for a, a certain day to a certain person, and then cross reference with the people actually in the office. So as soon as I gave them the code, you know the security guards went back to doing their own thing, you know drinking beer or whatever it was, and the guys like, oh hey man, yeah, how much do you uh, how much do you want to buy in for? But mm. well, I think the reason I didn't turn back is. Um, Firstly, I was on a bit of a roll on that trip. You know, it was, it was my first real trip as a professional poker player. Um, and I had already, you know, I, I, I said to you, I'd already increased my bankroll by like 20, 25% in the, in the first game that I played in. And I wanted to take on the world. It was my first real taste of, of what I thought was being a pro. Obviously, now, you know, I like to think that I'm more mature. I've grown a little bit. I know that the game is very different to what my naive... 21 year old self thought it was at the time um but yeah it's just i, I got into poker because of rounders um and it just felt like that i was just like yeah this this is this is the script to rounders at the moment and i'm living in the movie you know i'm, I'm the young matt damon <laughs> rocking <laughs> up to these underground new york games you know let's let's go let's let's we're, we're dreaming of 
Vegas and the effing Mirage. Yeah. So. Oh, well, well, like you said, it's good that you lived to tell the tale because <laughs> indeed there's, there's a lot of stories that I could go into where some people that I know basically, you know, suffered from some of bad decisions like this and risking yeah. getting into the games, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, I mean, the way it happened for you is sort of fine. Okay. The Airbnb and, you know, then a ref referral from supposedly a pro. So yeah, I mean, still very shady, very risky, et cetera, et cetera. But also like not surprising in terms of behavior of not turning back. Right. Obviously, yeah. like you said, for you, it's a movie script. Um, sort of, you know, and it's just you're on the roll, et cetera, et cetera. And we see it ha happening to poker players over and over and over again, you know, online and live. Yeah. Online, the same thing translates of people just jumping up the stakes and jumping yeah. up the stakes. I'm on the roll. This is awesome. You know, let's just go for it. Let's just go for it. And very often I bring up the quote from uh, Barry Greenstein when he said that, you know, show me a poker player who hasn't gone broke yet and i'll show you somebody who has a lot to learn right? yeah so that's one of the things you know when you when you go on these like okay i'm on the roll let's let's move up the stakes let's let's do something stupid it's gonna be fine uh mm. once you get burned a couple of times you sort of mature forcefully because you know well you, you have to but um yeah I, such an interesting story i mean you've traveled to so many places and you've been around clubs and games and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this is one thing that is going to stay forever with you. You know, it's a fucking cool story to tell your grandchildren sort of thing, you know? I, I honestly think at the time as well, and you talk about um, that Barry Greenstein quote and, I, we were just speaking before we went live and uh, I'll tell the story as well a bit later on, but I, my, my first ever role that I built, um, I was stung. You know, I was burnt in a, in a pretty brutal way where I lost my entire role in a game that was rigged when I was like 16, 16, 17 years old at the time. Um, but I think the reason I didn't learn from that lesson in the first place was because I was so adamant that I had something to prove not only to myself, but, you know, to friends and family, because understandably, you know, I'm telling my parents when I'm like 18, 19 or whatever age it was that I want to be a professional poker player, you know, I would tell my kids to grow up and like, go and get, go and get a job, you know, and my parents did rightfully. So, so I think a lot of that New York trip, um, was me signaling to my family and to people that, I don't want to necessarily say didn't believe in me or didn't believe that I had what it takes to become a professional poker player, but they were just more concerned about me failing and having nothing to fall back on. So there was a lot of ego in that trip. You know, there's a lot of, you know, me sharing on social media, like showing my parents, look at me, I'm in New York, I'm in Boston, you know, I'm in Atlantic Sea, I'm staying in these nice places, you know, like, haha, like you were telling me not to play poker and go and get a job now look at me um and yeah i you know just young and dumb and full of ego um just trying to prove a point and and also uh, earlier on in my career um 
not professional career, but when I was trying to make it, when I was trying to build a role, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not too proud of uh, who I as who I was as a person during that time. I, it was very fake. It was a lot of you know fake it till you make it. I was tr- I was pretending that I was this you know successful poker player um, to, to friends and family when in reality you know I was stacking shelves in, in a supermarket in uh, night shifts you know like on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays um, behind the bar because I dusted my roll for the fifth time you know, in six months or whatever. So that to me was me knocking on the door. You know, me knocking on the door was like, right, I'm going to go in here. I'm going to make some more money. Um, then I'm going to have another story to tell my parents. You know, when they asked me, oh, how much money do you make so far this week? I'm like, oh, I've made 4K this week, you know, knowing that that is what my parents earn in a month. Uh, luckily, you know, I'm pretty happy with how I've matured since then. But looking back, I think a lot of it just came down to just ego and trying to be accepted by everyone that I knew as this guy that is living the good life. You know, the guy that followed his dreams and kept pushing and pushing when everyone was telling him to, you know, like give up. I think that was uh, that. That's what made me knock on the door. Mm. Wow, it's really interesting that. Uh you know, the way you see it. And I, I really believe that that's the case, you know, and that's so 100%. true for so many people and it manifests itself in, in very many different ways. You know, I see people, you know, especially that part of the ego and the fake it till you make it thing mm. happens so often and it happens in different stages of different people's career, right? I've seen people who, were successful mid-stakes grinders and yeah. were no longer successful mid-stakes grinders yet to themselves and to everybody else they are still selling they were still selling the story of i'm still successful mid-stakes grinder yeah. and it's just things are going really good mm. when the reality is completely not true and the worst thing and when people are fooling themselves that is the worst because i mean sure fool the other people's uh, people that's stupid you shouldn't do it like you, sh- you should live your own life, not like pretend to live a different life just the, for the benefit of others. But uh, when you're fooling yourself, that is so dangerous, you know, because that's what gets a lot of people burned, you know, because that's how people lose their role. On paper, everybody knows, okay, bankroll management, hugely important, et cetera, et cetera. But then when somebody has it in their head, um, I, let's say I'm a PLO 200 player. Mm. And that's it. And that's a label you put on yourself. That's your ego attached to it. So as a PLO 200 player, you're not moving down the stakes because, hey, I'm a PLO 200 player. I'm not playing this crappy 100 game. I'm not playing this 50 50 PLO game, right? And that's so dangerous because, listen, you're supposed to be a professional. You're supposed to be objective, you know? On a a micro scale, even, you should always ask yourself a question you know, if this seat that I'm sitting in right now, if this was open, would I take it? Yeah. Right. How many people are actually asking themselves that question and, and then wondering, why did I play for way too many hours? Why did I not quit? Why did I do this, et cetera, et cetera? Because basically fooling yourself and, uh, you know, just ego steps in the way and ego dictates what you're going to do. Yeah, I mean, that's... You've hit the nail on the head in the sense that um, I was definitely lying to myself for 
a long time, a, a very long time. I, when I look back, um, I'm only really proud of what I've achieved in the last three years or so. And I'm not just talking from a commentary uh, point of view or even poker, just in terms of personal growth as who I am as a person, because uh, as much as I don't like to admit, yeah, I, I used to just like be a compulsive liar when it came to poker because I just really wanted to be accepted and I didn't want to go down the route that, you know, most of my friends had gone and, you know, family members had gone because I had seen, you know, later on in life that they had a lot of regrets and I wanted to just give off this illusion that, you know, I was just crushing the game and I was living my best life and I wasn't. And, uh, you know, fortunately, yeah, I've got some very good friends and, you know, my parents are very, my, my parents are my biggest fans now, man. I, I love, I, <laughs> I love how it's transitioned from them telling me not to play poker to now, you know, whenever I'm traveling, you know, my parents are on the phone, like, how are you getting on? You know, what are you playing? How, how's it going? You know, send us pictures. You know, have got the family group chat. I love it. My parents, you know, my, yeah, my, my biggest fans, but you, you hit the nail on the head, but it was, uh, it was definitely a case of not being honest with myself. And I actually recently had, I don't want to say similar, but I play live poker, right? You know, and I had a very good last six months of, of, of last year to, towards the end of 2019. And I had a very good start to the beginning of this year as well. Um, I think in terms of like bankroll in the space of eight months, I went from like a 15K roll to like a six figure roll where I had just been splurging through traveling um, and, you know, just like living the go with the flow lifestyle to then really starting to take poker seriously. Like, okay, right, listen, you know, you, you're growing, you're getting these commentary gigs, you really need to like knuckle down and it, it worked, you know, I went, I ran really well. And then COVID happened. Um, you know, I know there are more important things than my bankroll management, but it, COVID happened and it's something that affected live poker. So it was like, okay, well, you know, we'll just go back to Europe. I was in America at the time um, and we'll play online. And I was like, well, if I'm playing, you know, 10-10, deep stack 10-10 live and you know, the occasional 25, 25, 50 game in order to make the same amount of money that I have been, you know, I'm just jumping in the 500 Zoom call. <laughs> and even though I know some of the guys that are playing and, and, you know, crushing the 500 Zoom call and the 1K PLO games on Stars and Party are beasts, I was convinced that, you know, I'm going to be able to go, I'm going to be able to, ba I'm going to, be able to battle with these guys. And the reality was that it was a pretty quick and harsh lesson uh, after dropping like 15K within a week of returning to the UK. It was like, okay, Henry, like you have two choices here. You can continue to believe that because you can beat a 10-10 game live, which, you know, my mum could probably beat a 10-10 game live if I gave <laughs> her a bit of coaching for a while. And you think you can come into a very well-established 500 Zoom player pool uh, or 500 or 1K uh, PLO on, on party, then, you know, 
you haven't really learned anything from your previous mistakes. So I dropped. I, I, I remember, I think we, I spoke about it with you, you know, I just went right back to the drawing board. It was like, okay, we've lost the 15K. Let's forget about that. That's, that's gone. We're not going to be able to get that back until we uh, start playing live poker again. So we can either dwell on it and let us let it eat, eat us from inside, or we can do what we need to do, which is start looking at solvers, start working with solvers, start going through uh, the content on Run It Once, uh, you know, some of Galfon's videos, start talking with people that I already have in my network uh, in terms of like software that I can use to basically plug a ton of leaks that I have in my game because of the live aspect um, and kind of coming from a live background. And yeah, I, I was very happy with myself in the sense that I put my ego aside and dropped all the way down to 50 PLO again, even um, at, at one point, because I just wanted to rebuild my fundamentals and, you know, do it properly. Um, so uh, similar to you know fooling yourself, I could have certainly continued to pretend that I was just you know running pad when the reality was that these guys were just shitting on me. You know, like I, I was the live rig that they dream about coming into the game, just like playing way too many hands, getting just too sticky in certain spots, um, and you know lost a decent chunk of change. Um, but yeah, I'm glad to see that personal growth in the sense that four years ago. I'd probably be sat here telling you that I just lost my entire role because I would have continued grinding uh, 500 PLO and I would have continued grinding, uh, like jumping into 1K uh, PLO streets as well, where I'm just not winning. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. That you know, you you grew enough to make that stop, whereas you know a lot of people would have gone all the way, all the way down, because it's yeah. you know the same metaphor of knocking on the door. For poker yeah. players, for majority of us, you know, making a decision of turning back and sort of, you know, for example, just the decision of quitting poker, right? For some people, that would be a pretty, pretty smart decision to make, but it's a hard one, right? It's it much easier to keep knocking on the door. You, you keep getting these doors with increasingly worse and worse graffitis on them, and you're like, Nah, it's it's gonna be fine. It's just gonna let's keep knocking, you know, instead of just taking a step back. Like so many people don't even take like a month off. You mm. know, any other career, you would feel like, okay, I'm burning out. I'm just, you know, things are not going well. Um, I hate my job. You as a poker player are in such a privilege to just step away, like go away for yeah. a month, you know. And when I when I talk to some people who achieved great success, visible and otherwise, in poker, most of them at some point took like an ex extended period of time off. You know, if we yeah. think about Fedor Holtz, right? I mean, this guy just took like, went around the world, then took another long break, then, um, you know, took some small ones. He's just, he's taking breaks all the time. Whereas somehow, you know, the guys at the mid-stakes, low-stakes environment, they feel so much pressure for like, oh, I can't afford to take days off. I can't afford to take a holiday. That is a problem in itself. If you can't afford a holiday, what the hell are you doing with your life? I, I don't understand it, man. Like, they, these guys have decent... 50K, you know, when you're in your early 20s is a shit ton of money. 
And, you know, these guys that are grinding mid stakes, whether it's like five, five, 10, 10 live, uh, or 25, 25 live, which, you know, you should really have like a six figure role if you're grinding 25, 25 live or, you know, 200 PLO or 500 PLO online, um, would require, you know, at least 50 K in my opinion. And they just panic. And I've been guilty of that in the past as well. Um, I, I've found it very difficult and it's something that I had to work on. And I can now, you know, uh, say that I, I can comfortably take breaks from poker, but I used to panic and I, I understand them, you know, when you do have a role and it's kind of like a high score that you want to like keep building and building and building. And then you try and detach yourself from playing poker for your mental health to like take a month off, go on holiday, vacation with the family or friends, whatever. And then you see that your role is decreasing because you're spending money and it's not growing because you're not playing poker. That little seed just, I don't know what it is. For me, it was a real struggle to just be like, Henry, chill out. Like, okay, yeah, you spend 1500 or, you know, 2K to travel and see some friends. But in terms of life EV, your life EV just went up a considerable amount because you've now been to this mountain or you've now been to this museum or you've been to this city. Like, don't worry about poker. Poker's going to be there. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with um, is, is to understand that, you know, your role isn't worth trading your life EV for in the sense that turning down opportunities to travel and, you know, gain new experiences just so that you can play online or get your a certain amount of hands in to potentially make, you know, five big blinds per hundred or whatever your win rate is. It's just, it's, it's not a good trade off. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. Mm. And one of the thing that you mentioned is a key, key thing here that, chasing the high score type of mentality mm. it is yeah. not a high score it is not a game it's not a video game where a lot of people actually treat it as a video game and it is they just do. a high score for them and then sure you're chasing the numbers and like logically the difference between a hundred thousand and ninety six thousand is not that big of a deal but you know that round number the beautiful oh that's the six figures you know it's a a stupid sort of let's go for it you know because like whenever somebody's doing a bankroll challenge for example they're never gonna do like oh i'm gonna do you know 100 bucks i'm gonna turn them into 3.25k you know that's not gonna happen that's always gonna be okay 100 to 3k you know we we like uh, round numbers and sure it's fine you know but if you get attached to these numbers and you start chasing the high scores, well, there's all sorts of problems coming in. And I yeah. talked about, uh, you know, the dangers of setting monetary goals as a poker player a lot. Because I think this is one of the things that hurts a lot of people. It hurts a lot of well, poker players, you know, just... One of the worst things you can do. Exactly. It stifles your development. It stifles... It's like introduces wrong incentives. Uh, it introduces a lot of anxiety because you can't control your results. I mean, let's face it. As much as you want to, you can't, you know. And if if you set a monetary goal and then you're not reaching it, then there's all sorts of things of, oh my God, the life is not so not fair. Why am I running so bad? Like, this yep. is not fair. This is just happening to me. Look at these other idiots. They're getting so lucky. They don't deserve it. 
I don't deserve you know, being in this situation, etc., etc. And it's just perpetual sort of downward spiral that brings a lot of people a lot of pain. And it all starts by setting that stupid monetary goal as 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 your goal, right? It's the worst thing in poker, in my opinion, that you can do as a professional. So firstly, if you look at the psychological aspect of setting monetary goals in poker and let's say i don't know for argument's sake that you play five five for a living and you've got a 25k roll and your goal is to get to 50k by the end of the year and then you get to 50k let's let's say you make it cool you achieve your goal you know like the dopamine levels will be they'll be there for a little bit but you'll wake up the next morning and i guarantee you wake up the next morning because i've done this before and i know a lot of people that have that used to set monetary goals as well and you will wake up feeling empty. You'll hit the 50K and you'll just be like, what next? And the, the comparison to achieving the goal, the monetary goal that you've set, to not achieving it, mate, like, eh, just don't do it. I, I've, I used to do it and the, the trade-off just it isn't worth it because not hitting the goal feels 10 times worse than it does to compare to hitting the goal uh, in, in, in the good to bad ratio, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it is just a case of what next, like as soon as you hit it. Uh, so fortunately, you know, I've, I've had many mentors uh, in my relatively short poker career and life as well, like life mentors, not just poker, who have taught me to use systems instead of goals. And this is something that I preach quite heavily to my friends as well. You know, friends that don't even play poker, you know, they just finished uni and they've got these goals of, you know, joining law firms and this, that, and the other, and they want to achieve certain things. I'm like, listen, if you set goals, you're setting yourself up for failure. As harsh as it sounds, you're setting yourself up for failure. Design a system that is going to help you get to where you want to get. So for me personally in poker, I've designed a system where, you know, getting a good night's sleep, eating healthily, working out, being honest with myself when it comes to study, networking, you know, sharing hands, that system itself could easily make me 200K in a year, 300K in a year. But if I set a goal to hit 300K and I like utilize all of the things that I just listed and I don't achieve it, I'm going to feel shitty for, for not achieving. I'm going to feel like a failure. So I'd rather just have a system in place that is designed to achieve what it is that I want to achieve. I know that it's a working system and just go with it. You know, just mm. go, go, go with the system. It works. It's been proven to work. Be happy that you've learned the lessons and you've got the system in place and the results will eventually come rather than saying, Oh, this is what I have. I've got the network, you know, I've got the skill set. I've, I've got the ambition to study therefore you know i deserve to make 200k this year so i'm going to set myself a goal to make 200k yeah. you're just setting yourself up for failure yeah and like like you illustrated basically you know these uh, process oriented goals are are really useful right because well you have a system in place you have a process in mind you you have the specific milestones that you're trying to reach but all of the yeah. things that you can control, you can't control how much money you're going to make in poker as much as we would like exactly. to think. I mean, you can't control it. It's, it's going to be what it's going to be. 
you can control your win rate, mm. uh, but the win rate happens to be over time. It's not, you know, just because you have a win rate of 10 big blinds per 100 doesn't mean that every 100 hands you're actually raking in uh, 10, 10 big blinds, right? It would be awesome, exactly. but it's not, not the way it works. And another thing that you illustrated is, I think, important to reiterate here that, you know, the reaching your monetary goal is a one-time event. Once you reach it, it's like a one moment in your life. You reached it and then a sort of, and then what thing happens. Yep. But working towards the goal is a continuous process. And if it's increasingly, you know, doesn't go the way you want it to go, it just mm. keeps adding the pressure, keeps adding the negativity, keep, keeps adding the, all the bad emotions. And so, yeah, there's really no upside in, in setting monetary goals, especially like specifically in poker, because you can't control how much money you're going to make. So why are you setting these goals it's on par of setting the goals of i want there to be you know only 50 rainy days this year you mm -hmm. know well good luck with that you know <laughs> just like sure that's a nice goal you know yeah go ahead i mean Let's... the 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 pressure thing is something that i missed out on and i think that is what it boils down to is you're just putting unnecessary pressure on yourself to hit certain targets because for whatever reason, you've said that, right, that's the amount of money that I need. Um, uh, I need to hit in poker or, or even outside of poker. You know, I need to be a uh, manager by the end of the year within, my, within the firm that I'm working at. You know, I'm, I'm currently a consultant. I want to be manager by the end of the year. Well, you're going to be disappointed a lot of the time. Like you may be a really good consultant in whatever industry it is that you work in, but how about you just design a system that is ultimately going to, you know, help your career and help you grow as, you know, uh, it, it, within that industry. And when you get the promotion to manager, you know, you, it will come eventually, but like, don't put a label on it. Don't put a date, don't put um, whatever it is on it. To, Cause it's just going to build up pressure. Cause when the end of the year comes, you know, it's November and you still haven't, heard rumors in the office that you're getting promoted, you're just going to feel deflated. It's going to affect your work rate. It's going to affect how efficient you are, whatever it is that you do. And that could ultimately stop you from getting what it was you were trying to, to achieve in the first place in, in terms of that goal that you set, that that could potentially be your downfall, would be your own goal. And with it not being in sight, could that make you, in poker terms, can make you become more aggressive for your bankroll management because you still haven't achieved that goal. So you then start shot taking games that you shouldn't be playing in because you're just not winning in those games. And you know, you're back to square one again. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we should jump back to that um, story that you briefly mentioned. And you said you're going to get back to that. The first time you got burned uh, when you were yeah. 16, because I. I, we talked off cam well off camera a bit about it, uh, and so there's some card mechanics involved. And uh, yes, I'm looking forward to find out more because I've I've been burned early on in my career playing live mm -hmm. games as well uh, with the card mechanics. And I want to hear your experience there. Well, firstly, very impressive how they do it. Like I mean, we've all seen rounders. I knew that it was possible, but I didn't know how 
Yeah, un- un- unnoticeable it was. Um, so just to give like the people that don't know me a bit of a, a background. Uh, when I was 13, I moved to Bulgaria. Uh, my parents are, are property developers. And you know, there was a recession back in 2007, 2008. Um, so they had to like relocate to, to a new place where they could invest money. And I came home from school one day and they're like, oh, you're not going to school tomorrow, Henry. I'm like, oh, why is that? I'm like, well, we're moving to Bulgaria. I was like, where the fuck is Bulgaria? Like, I, honestly, just young and dumb, didn't even know where Bulgaria was. Um, so I moved, moved to Bulgaria and learned the language within four months. The conversational side of speaking Bulgarian, I had that down. You know, I had the, the certificate, the C1 certificate, but I was struggling in school with biology, uh, you know, chemistry, maths, because I was having to learn all of these new terminologies in Bulgarian. And I didn't even understand them, uh, understand them in English. So it got to a point where I was like close to 16 years of age where I realized that I was probably going to fail high school um, because I just wasn't getting the grades to you know keep me afloat. And I'd already discovered poker um, through the movie Rounders and playing Zynga online um, that I started skipping classes to just go to the internet cafe and play Counter-Strike and play Zynga poker. And I met these guys, I, the guys that are a few years older than me, um, like year 12. And they were like, oh, Henry, like, get off the computer, come and play with us, you know, playing some one cent, two cent um, version of stud at the time. And I remember I knew what a Royal Flush was. Um, I was like, okay, right. I remember a, a point in my life where my main priority was to make a Royal Flush. I was like, okay, I know that a Royal Flush is the best hand. So we're just going to fold everything else because, you know, we need to make a Royal. So that's how, <laughs> that's how shit I was at the game at first. But the interest and the spark and the passion for poker grew from there quite rapidly. And I spoke to a couple of classmates um, who had also been like playing on like Zinger poker. And we eventually organized a, I think it was like a two cent, five cent cash game where we'd all buy in for like five euros. And pretty quickly, it was evident that me and a very close friend who's still a very close friend of mine now, he's actually a, a solid MTT rec from Bulgarian Stoyan Katanov. Um, it was evident that we were winning in this game versus the rest of our friends at a very decent win rate. Um, and it got to the point where I built up a pretty insane role considering we were playing like two cent, five cent, or occasionally, you know, five cent, 20 cent that I was like, okay, I need a bigger game. Um, I, I need a bigger game. And again, this comes down to ego, being young and dumb and naivety um, is a sense that I'm a British guy in Eastern Europe um, in a relatively small town in a very impoverished uh, town as well, you know, where the average salary per month is like 200 euros a month and not realizing that, you know, people are going to be shady in those types of places because 5k is like two years salary. And 
I was speaking to like one of the friends that we were playing like two set five set with. He's like, "Oh well, I do know this this game, this one two game." And I was like, "Okay." He's like, "But you shouldn't go there. Like, you don't want to be involved in that game." I was like, "What do you mean? Why don't you want me to be in that game?" Like, then this is where the ego comes in. It was like, "Oh, so you think that I can't win in this one two game? That's what you're saying?" He's like, "No, it's like just you don't want to go to this game. Just, we're all friends here." You know, we hang out with each other outside of poker as well. You know, we go and play pool, we go and play tennis, we drink. Like, just stick to this game, Henry. You don't, you don't need to go to this one-two game. And I was just like, fuck this guy. Like, I thought you were my friend. And you're basically uh, insinuating that these guys in this one-two game are better than me. You know, I'm going to show you, basically. So find out about the game, get a bit more information, and uh, they're organizing a game. And first game I go to... Um, it was like a full ring hold'em game and nothing happened um, to me personally like everything seemed fine uh, I think I might have even made like a couple of hundred bucks um, but nothing to to raise any red flags so then I'm like eager to to get another big game you know I've got about 5k to my name and I want to prove to my parents that dropping out of school you know was the right thing to do so I text the guy that runs it. He's like, oh, okay, well, the guys that came last time, you know, they were from out of town. They're from like Sofia and Varna and they had to travel a long way. So they're not going to be interested in coming back for a game. But if you want, we can play like three-handed. I was like, okay, cool, against two. He's like, well, me, the person that runs the game and the restaurant owner, the place that we played in, in, in the restaurant. I was like, okay, cool, yeah. So I go, we play one, two, sit down with 500. We all sit, both sit down with 500. And this is where I should have known straight away that the game is rigged. But long story short, about six hands in, I get aces, he gets kings, and it comes, all the money goes in the middle, comes ace, queen, jack, king, 10, and we chop it. And the reason they let you chop that first pot and the reason that that hand setup happens is to remind you that these things happen in poker. Because I remember speaking about this in detail um, with one of the guys that used to be involved in running shady games like this. So they give you that false sense of security almost that, oh, it's poker, yeah, aces against kings, and we end up chopping it. It comes ace, queen, jack, king, ten. Um and about two hours later, you know, I'm down like 3K. Um, you know, queen, deuce, deuce, flop. I've got pocket queens all in, all in, all in. And I'm like, oh, hang on. I've got queens in this spot. You know, what the fuck do these other two guys have that they're, you know, betting so aggressively? Um, and I remember going downstairs and bumping into my old hairdresser. And the moment she saw me coming down the stairs from the private uh, floor from the restaurant where she knew that the game was run, her face just went so pale. Like, it was like seeing a ghost. She was just like, immediately, she was like, Henry, what are you doing up there? So, oh, we're playing poker. And obviously, I'm down like 3K at this, uh, at this point. So I'm not exactly in like a super hyped mood. And she was like, why don't you just go home? And I was like oh, well, you know, we're playing poker. And she's like, you okay? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing fine. You know, there's four of us up there, we're playing poker or whatever. And it turns out that she was dating 
the guy that was the mechanic, the guy that was organizing the game, but she obviously couldn't tell me this. And, you know, a couple of hours later, I'm on the phone to my mum. Can you send me a taxi? You know, I don't have any money for a taxi. Um, you know, can you pay for a taxi and send it to me and come and pick me up? And then I, a week goes by or whatever. And I go back to the two cent, five cent game with my friends. And my friend told me, he's like, I told you not to go. I was like, yeah, but you didn't tell me that it's a rigged game. It's like, well, I can't tell you that, you know, because if word gets out that I've told you that, you know, I'll get my legs broken. I'll get my, you know, I'll just get beaten up or whatever. And I remember at the time being insanely angry with him. But now that I understand how those things work and, and who they were as well, like they were like heavily involved with the mob in Bulgaria. Um, I understand why he couldn't tell me. And the same reason why my hairdresser couldn't tell me, even though, you know, she was very fond of me, but it was her boyfriend that was the one rigging the game. And uh, yeah, so that was that. And then I remember about two years ago, three years ago. So this is like six, seven years after losing my first bankroll to these, these mechanics. And I was in Bulgaria visiting friends for the summer. I went to a, a legit casino in, um, in Sofia. And obviously people always find me interesting there because I speak the language fluently and I'm obviously not Bulgarian. So I get talking and a couple of people ask me like, where did I learn the language from and what town I grew up in? And I said the name, I was like, Pavla Kenny. Like, oh, do you know so-and-so? Like the guy that had rigged the game, like two of the people involved in, uh, in rigging the game. I was like, yeah. It's like, I was like, what makes you say that? I was like, I haven't heard that name in like a long time. He's like, yeah, he's been exiled from the country. And I was like, what do you mean he's been exiled by who? What, the government? They're like, no, like Johnny Boy over there playing in the high stakes area. Uh, they stung him for 150K. I was like, whoa. They're like, yeah, like a rigged game, like the, the mechanics. I was like, wow. I, was, I didn't want to like confirm that I knew. Uh, that they were mechanics was like oh yeah I, th I thought I heard stuff like that before and they're like yeah and you know no one fucks with Johnny Boy so you know <laughs> he uh, apparently yeah just got chased out the country by they, they stung the wrong people basically um, they although that they were involved with the mob they've obviously then stung someone that was better connected within the Bulgaria mafia or whatever it was and uh, yeah can't even return back to the country now. Um, so pretty insane to look back at firstly the alarm bells that were ringing you know, I had a couple of people trying to warn me but they couldn't warn me directly for obvious reasons and then to find out later just how heavily involved they were with some dangerous people you know had I handled losing the money differently once I found out that the game was rigged had I gone around spreading rumours chatting shit had I approached them to like try and demand my money back could have gone in a lot of trouble so maybe losing the 5k isn't the worst thing that like could have happened it could have been a lot worse um, oh yeah absolutely but, man I mean yeah that was a that was a tough pill to swallow calling my mum and like yo can you send me five euros for for, for a taxi um, like, what's happened I'm like, yeah well, I've just lost all of my money kind of thing yeah Wow, it's crazy that you lost all of the money. I mean, like not even a 
taxi fare is ego. like that's pretty ego. crazy. Yeah. And I yeah. it got to the point where I was and I'm gonna I don't throw the word hundred percent around a lot. I was a hundred percent certain that the game was rigged towards the end of the game. But I was so adamant that I would be able to notice a setup when it was happening that I could just outplay them in other hands that weren't rigged. That is how... Talk about fooling yourself, right? Right. Like, looking back, and this is where it comes down to personal growth again and why I'm really proud with my personal growth over the last few years, but looking back to then, you know, just the ego and just wanting to prove to everyone that I was like the best and, and something that I wasn't. And I, I remember this is, this is a true hand history, right? From this game. We've now, we're now playing four handed after being three handed for a while. And I'd already said to them that I didn't want one of the guys dealing. So this is like already, I'm already down like three K or whatever it is. And I'm getting to the point where I'm getting close to hundred percent sure that this game is rigged. And I've already demanded that one of the guys doesn't do it. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Like, not knowing that they're all fucking mechanics, basically. And it's a limped pot. I'm in the big blind. I look down at pocket sevens and I check. And it comes seven, three, three. So there's only like eight euros in the middle, whatever. Small blind checks. I check. Now almost 100% sure this game is rigged. And all of a sudden it just goes, bleh, re-raise, all in. I'm in the big blind of sevens. It's seven, three, three on the board, and I just fold. Just fold pocket sevens, and it goes all in, all in. And this is where I kind of like gave it away because they've shown down their hands, and one of them's got jacks, and the other one's got kings on the button. Like, hang on a minute, right? This is somehow a limped pot, and you've got jacks, he's got kings, and it comes jack on the turn, king on the river. And like they go crazy, like Henry. Oh my God! Do you see that hand? Like, wow, that's so sick. Like, he's trapping with jacks, and I'm trapping with kings, and it goes all in. And you know, he hits a jack on the turn, and I hit a king on the river. I was like, yeah, I folded pocket sevens out of the big blind. And they're like, that you had a full house on the like trying to like they're trying to like play dumb, like realizing that I'd kind of like caught on a little bit. Like, what, well, why would you fold sevens? Like, oh, well, it's a good job you did anyway because look, look at that run out. That's so sick. And that, that was when the 100% confirmation kicked in and that was the first big fold that I had made in terms of setups. I was like, okay, we can now visibly see clear setups. So what we're going to do is we're just going to deviate from you know, our strategy and just outplay them with shitty hands, basically. And obviously... <laughs> That didn't work out for me. And, yeah. <laughs> and any time. game where you have to fold the top full house on the flap is probably not the game you're going to be able to win. Mm. It's crazy. It's crazy. And yet, and I mean, it, I've heard a similar story from many people. You know, you are 100% sure this is rigged and you keep playing, right? Yeah. It's, it happens, happens over and over again. Like when you found out um, that there were mechanics involved, what what did you do about it? Like, did, how did it influence, you know, because you're obviously playing live all the time. So did that have any effect on, and you know, it's sort of a leading question. So actually, let me, let me tell you my experience, right? Because I was basically looking to find out if you 
felt the same way that I did because I also got burned in the mechanics and similar, exactly the same type of thing. You know, first first thing you get a chopboard uh, where again it, I probably was aces against something, you know, and then yeah. you know, okay, it's a chop chop, and you you're feeling this oh shit, you know. Well, at least I got lucky, and I could have been worse because it was yeah. it was the other way around for me. Like uh, the money went all in on the. Um, I think the, yeah, the money went all in pre-flop, and then it's a king on the on the flop, an ace on the okay. river. So you actually feel lucky to chop, right? It was yeah. like oh, aces against kings. Well, and you're lucky to chop, right? but then mm. obviously the shit started happening, and it was a full ring game, okay, private game, uh, and there was a dealer, uh, a licensed dealer, on a rotation. There was a rotation of dealers, li- licensed dealers who were. Uh, actually, dealers in a local casino, and they could lose their license if if they're dealing these games, right? So they're yeah. actually taking a risk. Mm. Um, anyway, so yeah, one of the dealers was a mechanic. Um, I found out only later. Well, I found out mid-game, and I I did leave the game. You you did or you didn't? Sorry, I did. I did leave the game because you, you know first I figured okay, this setup, this is setup. And then I started paying attention. I made a big fold. I, I saw the run out. Because the thing is, you see, in that game, it was uh, full rings. So there was only like a couple of people collaborating with the dealer. Mm. Right. So we did see the showdowns. So I could, you know, I could see some confirmations of, okay, that, that there was a setup. Because otherwise, I'm pretty sure that, you know, if I fold, then if it, up, if it was up to the people involved, they would also just fold, don't see the showdown, not to reveal anything. Right. Yeah. But um yeah, so I, I quit the game, never went back. But what I did is I read all of the books I could get my hands on, watched all of the videos about card mechanics, and I went into like this crazy thing of like I'm I studied card mechanics for like Wow. I wanna say three months. I was with a deck of cards in my hands for like three months, you know, eat, eating my dinner, doing the doing the things and eventually it came to a point so i spent like three months doing that and uh, a couple of friends of mine who were also dealers in a local casino and they've been dealers for like 12 12 years or something right they were yeah. they came over for dinner and um we were having dinner at one point i'm saying like hey guys you know let's 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 play play a game i want to show you something right and uh I don't remember how I set it up, but it was like, I'm just going to show you something like uh, just going to deal you a hold them hand, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I deal a complete setup, you know, just like, tell me how many players uh, in the game. Tell, tell me where you sit. Tell me where you sit. Tell me where I sit. You know, so tell me everything. So I deal it once, you know, obviously the, the runouts of the board was, was rigged. The cards, the whole cards for the players were rigged. They didn't notice anything. So after that hand, I obviously say, okay, so you realize what happened. I basically set it all up. So let's do it again. Like you watch me now, right? So shuffle, 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 cut, 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 deal, deal, deal. Tell me first, like deal, how many, how many people at the table? Like six. Okay. Well, let's deal six. Where are you sitting? Et cetera, et cetera. I deal it out. It's all good. Did you see anything? No. Let's do it wow. again. Right? So these guys worked for 12, 12 years. And to me, it was... I mean, obviously, slightly obsessive because right? like, I went full full retard on this and, uh, and completely, you know, just like... You went full yeah. worm from rounders on it. You're like, yeah, right. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I got like, okay, well, I, I need to figure this out. Like, what is going on? Like, yeah. 
I, I need to do it so that I can spot it, right? So to protect myself. And then when I saw these two guys with 12 years of experience, not see a single move after three times when I spe specifically twice they were watching closely. I told them, watch it, you know, and I'm doing everything casino rules, the shuffles, the, yeah. the cuts, etc. So I figured, you know what, if I just slightly obsessive after three months could have fooled them, I have no chance ever to see a good mechanic do his thing in a real game when, you know, especially most of the private games, you at some point of the day, you're probably having a drink, you're having a conversation. It's there's always a conversation. You're not watching the dealer all of the time. No. Even if you would be watching, you would still not spot it. And uh, to me, it was like, oh, fuck, you know, <laughs> is that the way it's going to be? Because I'm not never going to be able to tell. It's, it's scary to think about. It, it really is. And there have been situations, uh, I don't want to name the names of the casinos, but uh, when I was still living in, in Eastern Europe, um, of actual dealers and floor staff in a licensed casino being involved in shit like this. Um, there was one in Glasgow as well. Um, slightly different. It was, there was a barcode on the cards and um, the guy had like headphones in, pretend to listen to music and he just basically knew whenever, whenever he was going to win the hand, he knew that he was going to win the hand. Yeah. Um, but it's scary to think about as a live reg when someone is approached let's say someone who doesn't make that much money or is struggling for whatever reason as a family they got to feed their other half hasn't like worked in a few months because they've lost their job and a floor manager comes to you and says yo do you want to make some real money on the side kind of thing you know you're a dealer um we'll give you like a 20 percent cut you know, where, where are the the moral ground police? Then they're, they're not there. They're, there's no one there, you know, the devil and the angel on the shoulder to tell these people don't do it because firstly, they're never going to get caught or most of the time they don't get caught. Obviously, there are cases. But if you think about the cases that you hear about, those are the ones that you hear about. I, I mean, like, I don't even want to try and begin to guess for every one case that you that we hear about where people are actually caught doing it, how many other cases go unnoticed? And it is scary to think about as a live rig that, you know, dealers that you're supposed to trust, floor staff that you're supposed to trust, are normally the ones that are involved in these types of scams, especially in licensed casinos. Obviously, private games... You know, everyone should know the risks of going to private games. Just it comes with the territory. Um, you know, you can't be naive to the fact that you're going to get stung in certain private games. And I don't want to scare people from going to private games, but just keep your wits about it. if you see anything shady. You know, if you play for four hours and for some reason quads over quads happens like five times, like just keep an eye on things, you know, but it. it I'm not too scared about private games being rigged because I think that I would now notice it a lot quicker. What I am scared about is the fact that I let my guard down in casinos because I trust 
casinos, as stupid as it sounds. But, you know, I, I would think, no, you know, they've got a reputation. And we spoke about this off stream before we went live about, you know, integrity and people's reputations. Like, no, they would never rig a game for the sake of making, you know, like 10K, 20K or 100K, depending on the stakes that you're playing. Because um, it would just, you know, ruin the casino's reputation. But it does happen. And it's scary, man. Yeah. And plus, I mean, we, we only touched upon card mechanics and all the technology. You've mentioned the barcode thing. You know, there's so yeah. much technology nowadays. It's fucking scary. And like you said, like in a licensed establishment, the only way any cheating happens is if the floor manager and the dealer, or at least the dealer is in on it. But usually both have to be in on it because obviously licensed casinos have procedures. You know, you can't just bring in your own deck of cards to deal with like, you know, oh, I come here with my favorite deck of cards. This is, this mm. is my <laughs> signature deck, right? That's never going to yeah. happen. But so for, for a deck with barcode to show up there, I mean, there's, you know, it's not up to the dealer to bring it to the table. So exactly. it's scary, but you know, I, I also don't want to discourage people because I, I do play a lot of live games and uh, like yourself, I'm like, okay, I know the risks. At the same time, I know that I am not going to be able to catch any bullshit going on, especially like if people are smart about it. Mm. It comes with the territory. It's unfortunate the way it is, but uh, yeah, it's the risk that we should all be aware of. Yeah. You know, And greed is a horrible thing, which, you know, in poker money is involved and there's always going to be a minority and luckily it's a minority of people who have you know low ethics and just greed gets the better of them and they make bad decisions unethical decisions and uh, i don't know if we should talk about the recent scandal that that was in a you know, in the high stakes community, because like I, I feel if we segue from this discussion into that discussion, it, it's slightly, you know, it can be misunderstood that we are sort of saying it's the same thing. It's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really want to like, I don't want to try and put fear, you know, into people. I just want people to be aware that you know, yes our industry is an amazing industry. We have a wonderful community. As you said, you know, the majority of people have ethics and are lovely people. Sure, at the poker table, they will do everything they can to beat you with their edge or their skill set. But I think it should be noted that these things do happen. And if you are going to play poker, that you should be aware that it could potentially happen. And, to, you know, just like a fair warning to keep an eye out. Like you said, it's going to be impossible to spot a decent mechanic. It really is. But just to know that these things do happen and keep your guard up if you can, you know, mm. especially in private games. In casinos, look, the chance that it's happening in the casino is min like minuscule. Um, and for the 1-2 and the 2-5 and the 5-10 grinders and even the 10-25 grinders, probably not a chance that it's happening in your games because there's just not enough money to be made unless you're playing oh, yeah. some ridiculously deep stacked 510 game. I'm talking yeah. about the more bigger games, the 2550, 5100, the 100, 200 games where there is, you know, seven figures on the table sometimes that that is places in casinos where 
a floor manager whose yearly salary in Europe is maybe 35, 40K is approached by a player and the player says, listen, mate, how about we quadruple your fucking yearly salary kind of thing? Mm. There are going to be people... And I'm I'm not trying to justify what they do. Um, you know, money changes people. Um, that aren't going to be able to resist that kind of offer, and they are going to they're going to yeah they're going to fold um, to the opportunity to potentially make you know life changing money for them. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of card mechanics, just to put a stopper in, on the whole <laughs> discussion. Uh, if you're interested, and I'm gonna put in uh, links in the show notes, um, Richard oh, Turner. Richard Turner is just an amazing, amazing guy, and definitely worth checking out. There is a lot of documentaries about him. Like to give you a short, do you, have you ever heard about him? I haven't. No. All right. So this guy is incredible. He, I don't, I want to say he's 70 right now or close to it. Uh, he had a disease when he was young, so he lost his sight and uh, he's legally blind. Um, he, while being blind, he got a black belt in karate. Wow. Right. So that kind of guy, you know, and like the people he hang out with the achievements he did in life is just awe inspiring. This guy is incredible. He's a legend. And his thing is card mechanics as magic, sort of. Right, so it's it's his magic. He he performs in front of a lot of people. He created a lot of new ideas in the card mechanic world. You know, things that he can do. Pretty much, it's safe to say nobody else can do. Like some of the things that he can do, nobody else could do, even if you would tell them exactly how it's done. Because he, this guy, just basically lives with the deck of cards in his hand. <laughs> and there's a lot of documentaries about him. It's just insane. It's in. It's beautiful it's interesting and uh it's an amazing story so you know check it out yourself and i'm gonna put it uh in the show notes like i, I think everybody who's gonna watch some of that stuff are, are gonna be completely amazed like first of all how incredible is what he can do mm. and second you know his life stories are also yeah. incredible because he talked in one of the interviews and i don't remember which one but he talked about um you know, he got approached by basically the mob, right? Not directly, but a guy who was connected um, to deal a game. Yeah. And he had the wits to say no. Because the reality is for a guy like him, because we talked about, you know, some of the dealers crossing the line and some of the floor managers. The reality is if, let's say, you get involved in... Uh, crossing the ethical line in a very high stakes game and you are a card mechanic, you're just going to be basically, I don't remember what's the term. The term is probably, I think it's uh, being fully used or whatever. What it basically means that you are used in the game until you're no longer required and then you no longer exist. I mean, car accident, whatever, you drowned, things happen, right? Which is the unfortunate reality, and uh, it's crazy. And he talks about some of those stories as well. And uh, you know, oh shit! So what you're saying is is that these mechanics are they don't uh, have a high life expectancy if they cross the line. That's what I'm saying. They don't have a high life expectancy because they get caught, or they don't have a high no, life. No, because they get used. You know, if if the mob organizes the game, 
right? Oh. Well, I'm talking, obviously not talking about your local 1-2 game, right? I'm yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. a big game. You know, if you're yeah. going to... If you're gonna get like, do you really want this guy to walk around and ever tell anyone yeah. about it? Like, if there's yeah, millions exactly. of dollars changing hands, you know, and there's some some important people involved, like, do you want that? How difficult is it to get rid of them, right? And it's wow. it's something to think about, you know, because it's not often talked about. And um, in fact, I I don't really, I'm not really happy that I started talking about all these things because you know it's. But at the same time, I think people need to know that it's you know it's part of what happens when you cross the line you know what happens yeah. if you actually go the route that you're not supposed to if you if you behave not ethically it's not only about are you going to get caught it's about who else is involved right cuz mm. you know if you're involved with the shady people it's them you have to worry about it's not your average joe that you rob the money from you know what is he going to do your right. so-called business partners these are the guys you know that that are the risk in the game that's some scary shit i never yeah. never knew that never knew that's, that you that's just the <laughs> i feel like we started off the podcast talking about really productive <laughs> yeah. things and now we're just absolutely we just went really dark really dark <laughs> like that's just got like creepy you know like uh, well no, anyway no, let's Edit that part out. Fine. We'll, we'll get rid of that. <laughs> I don't know. We'll we'll see about that. We can leave some of it, but um, yeah. Let's let's go to some happier grounds and uh, please cover please, <laughs> cover something. Dark, <laughs> <laughs> it is it is scary. Um, let's talk about commentary, right? And poker is entertainment as such because right now you know i feel like we need a bit of entertainment after going into the dark aspects of the whole thing you know yes uh, which again i have to stress it's like it happens rarely rarely in very small cases etc cetera, etc cetera, but it does happen and it happens not only in poker i mean any industry you know you think about you know people playing shady deals with the stock market people you know yeah. ripping off their their companies etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean just you know, it happens Rip. everywhere it's not about poker it's about people and people yeah, rig, rig being who they are football yeah. matches boxing people going down in a certain round in a ufc fight it happens in every exactly quote unquote sport game yeah, even if you think about like all the bookkeeping scandals you know the yeah. the famous enron and stuff i mean greed is a thing and it's a horrible thing and it brings a lot of people down so well anyway but poker as entertainment right and you obviously doing the commentary are on the production side of the entertainment yes uh, what's your view of how things are changing first of all well we don't have as many personalities in my opinion like we did back in the high stakes poker game uh days like the poker after dark you know like the the stacks of cash and uh, you know darren negranu phil ivy tom duan you know there was you know doyle brunson some true legends of the game um like batting out we had profiles on all of them you know like we we knew all about them and their histories um and now i think it's transitioned from idolizing 
a select few players to giving everyone a platform. So what I mean by that is since those days of the, the poker after dark, you know, I don't think uh, Facebook was a thing. Instagram was a thing. Twitter was a thing. It kind of hadn't been introduced to the world yet. So we didn't hear about all of these young guys, unless you were like actively involved in like two plus two threads or whatever, or other thor- uh, forums about these guys that were, you know, getting it quietly online. They were crushing the games, but they were relatively still unknown. Now we've got platforms for everyone. You know, we're streaming one, two cash games. We're streaming environments. We have charity events that, you know, we're bringing in celebrities to play with recreational players. Um, we have festivals that are specifically designed to be, you know, like a fun environment and almost not necessarily take away the competitive side of poker, but, you know, there's small buy-ins um, and everyone goes to like these meetup games um, to like have like drinks with people and just play like casual poker. So I think that's where we're headed into the future. I think we've been on that transition now for for quite some time, but I think what a lot of poker companies have realised, and again, you know, I'm not really in a place of authority to say this is necessarily what's happening but i think there is more incentive to these companies that are running events and tournaments is to give more airtime to the recreationals you know and to the people that play poker as a hobby and i'm fully on board for that by the way i think it is great for us especially as professionals rather than and you see you know i don't want to get too sidetracked but Rather than have you know these like high-profile events where you know it's just like Chidwick staring down Alex Foxen, which by the way I love to see that shit. I'm a big fan of of uh, like intense high-stakes tournaments like that. Um, but I think the the major focus now is entertainment rather than uh, you know in-depth poker analysis and and skill being shown and displayed. It's more of let's just give everyone a platform. You know, let's make sure everyone sees, you know, how much fun everyone's having at our festival so that at the next event, more people are going to want to come and, you know, flick in the 500 euros or the 1,000 euros. Uh, their dream of winning, you know, 200K and a trophy and, you know, they get get to do the interview afterwards. I think that's where we're slowly transitioning. Um, companies seem to be focusing more and more on, you know, looking after the player, like the all the players though. Whereas before, I think... It, it was more focused on the elite and it doesn't seem to be as much uh, in 2020. Hmm. And I want to, like, what do you think about this? Because, like, I don't feel that there, there was a huge transition in terms of the purpose of the entertainment, right? And, you know, with all the shows currently and before, the idea is to show the fun aspect show the you know entertain people basically because like if we think back at the shows of like poker after dark if we think back at the shows like high stakes poker these guys were entertaining first yes. and foremost right? the huge personalities etc cetera, etc cetera. if we had personalities like this right now maybe these shows would continue but we probably don't because the whole composition of the high stakes environment changed because first of all i mean 
happy happy go lucky uh, you know is no longer good enough for for playing in those games you you actually exactly. have to work a lot so it's a different type of people who achieve something on a high level nowadays in these games second yeah. aspect is the games are just way tougher so you actually can't just be all smiles and hugs all the time you actually have to concentrate and think and take your yeah. time and uh, finally it's non-negligible thing there's so many people from europe there's so many people from all over the world whereas before you know you could just concentrate on you know the huge personalities from the states yeah who by the way were all awesome you know it's great tv it was great entertainment but nowadays imagine you you put in a bunch of german guys uh spanish guys uh whatever some eastern european guys a couple americans and um keep the camera rolling well language barrier is a thing i mean never yeah. mind that you know some of those people don't have the personality which is going to be like okay let's let's have some fun and let's you know um make make jokes etc i mean just on the fact that well it's easy to make jo- jokes in your own language well try to try to put like five different nationalities uh, with second or third language for each of them and uh, let's have some fun that's just not going to be it's not going to happen. So, you know, that's that's maybe the reason why those shows don't really exist anymore. I think because, like, I would I would watch that. You know, if we have like a rerun of you know a, a new season of High Stakes Poker with some mm-hmm. of the personalities, like it would be great. It would be fun. It, it, it would it would be amazing. Um, I think the language barrier thing is certainly one of them. Um, and it's also down to the fact, as you said, with poker getting tougher, a lot of people don't want to play on t- like TV as much any- like they used to because they don't want to give anything away. You know, it's the same with streaming. Uh, how, like, we just have the Galphon challenge with cards down. You know, we're never going to see those hand histories because you know, Freak and Venny and Phil, for obvious reasons, Although they were entertaining us and you know, we did get to see show and as we got to see insanely huge parts, then people don't want to give anything away. And if because they want to protect their edge for something that they've built up and they've they've you know put hours and hours and hours of work into their game to get to where they are. And I think that's why we don't see these big games run as often as we did before, you know, with the poker after dark. Because there are people out there that want to organize events like this. You know, I've tried, I tried getting a, a live at the bike versus King's resort crossover, um, on, on a few occasions because it was, you know, we had the big game with Leon and the wolf. And then obviously you had Garrett, um, and you know, some of the other crushes from, uh, from live at the bike streaming week in, week out with whole cards being shown. But other than them two streams, you know, I think a lot of the top pros that are playing in these big games just just wouldn't even be interested because, firstly, they've got softer games that they can play in against people who might not be seen as points of interest for a TV show, so recreationals um, or like businessmen. So offering a lineup of all these big names to people nowadays. So, oh, hey, yeah, Fedor, you know, like, all of these guys, how about you come and play against each other? Let's play some 500 1K on stream. 
why? Like, where, where's where's their edge in that? Or what did they get out of that? Are the company free rolling them the 100K to, to buy in with? No, of course they're not. The production company can't afford to free rolls, you know, seven guys into a game to, to battle against each other just for the sake of a TV show. Um, and the, these guys aren't going to want to sit down against people that are as good as them and expose their strategies to the entire world for people to be able to review later on as well. Oh, that's a great point. And you know what? I actually am ashamed to admit that I haven't thought about it. <laughs> you know, and even because I am streaming myself and I, of course, uh, encounter like some of my friends basically outright said to me, like, what the hell do you think you're doing? Right. Because, <laughs> you know, well, I am playing, let's say, up to 10K online and mm. I'd be streaming like literally in, in these last 10 days i streamed for like 12 hours or something just playing mm. cards up you know as you said like everybody can review everybody can see uh sure i'm not playing my a game i'm not trying to i'm not you know etc etc but still a lot of things are being revealed and so exactly yeah. like what's the point right i i yeah. do it because it's fun for me to do is it a smart business decision obviously not <laughs> right but uh like you said, like, why would anybody, yeah, exactly. Like, why would they want to do it? Uh, what's the upside? And the downside is clearly huge. Yeah. Uh, and we're seeing this with, with satellites now into, into tournaments, into, you know, some of the more prestigious events that we do still televise, you know, um, like WPT, some of the big pie poker millions events, you know, the way that it is promoted on social media uh, and like you have all of these pros coming on, like come and join me in Rio de Janeiro for this 10K, five mil guaranteed, whatever. You can now qualify from like 25 cents. You know, you can go through the steps. And I know that you have been able to do that for obviously for a long time, like even with WSOP main event back in the day. But that now seems to be the big thing is talking to people actually no i want to i want to go back on my because that, that's obviously been around for a long time but it, it seems to be more focused on you know let's hide onto the tv table let's build a story around that you know let's let's have these 200 euro buy-in 200k guarantee tournaments you know where 90% of the field are just there for the sheer thrill of, you know, potentially winning 60, 70 K from a 200 euro buy-in because that's good TV, you know, like seeing a guy whose Hendon mob only has $1,500 worth of live caches in his lifetime, final tabling a WPT or a party poker millions uh, or winning like a 200 euro party poker live event for 70 K that gets people talking. It gets people thinking, wow, like that could be me. I, I play, you know, five cent, 10 cent online. I, I'm going to go to that next event. You know, I'm going to book a hotel and go and play this 200 euro or this 500 euro or 1K euro event. And it's just great marketing from, from these companies that are doing it because it makes sense. You know, the pros are already there. The pros are already aware of what games they want to go to um, and their tournament selection and their game selection. But it is about bringing new people into the game and I don't think that we will get many more 
big games like Poker After Dark anymore. I think it's more leaning towards giving, you know, these hobbyists time on TV and giving them their moment to shine. And I think it's it's a great thing. Yeah. And like you said, that that aspect of people can actually relate to them. Yeah. This is a great thing. Exactly. Sure, it's more entertaining to watch something when you can say to yourself, oh, it could be me. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's a great point that you make because it's something I, I missed out on. Is as thrilling as it is to watch Poker After Dark and, you know, the Galfong Challenge and you see 100K swings, sometimes million-dollar swings in some of the big, like, Triton games, for example. People watch that and, you know, they see the big pots. That's cool. That, but that's, that's as far as the entertainment goes for them. It's just seeing the big hands and seeing some of the best players in the world battle against each other. But there aren't many people that can sit there watching that and be like, oh, that, that's, that could be me. I'm going to give Triton a call and get a seat in that game for the, you know, for the next stream. <laughs> no, like, you, don't, you just don't have 500K in your back pocket to go and play against Tom Dwan. So, um, so yeah, I'm a huge fan for these, these events that seem to be popping up around the, uh, I know, uh, Andrew Nimi and Brad Owen have done a great job of, you know, utilizing their, their YouTube platforms to build a community and like have these low buy-in, uh, meetup games, you know, like micro stakes, uh, live cash and these small tournaments. And they've been a huge success. They've been a huge success for obvious reasons because people enjoy playing poker as a hobby. You know, they they want to they want to sit down with these personalities, you know, like Brad and Andrew, and they they want you know with the party poker stuff and the WPT stuff that they're doing more and more recently. Obviously, you still have like the five diamonds, you have the more prestigious WPT events, but you also have these smaller ones, you know, like some of the insane prize pools that are connected with Party Poker Live, where you just can qualify for a few cents on your party poker account and yeah, it could potentially be you, you know, winning hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I think that's the dream that these companies have to sell. And I think it's more difficult to sell the dream that, oh, hey, you could come and battle against Phil Ivey, Nick Shulman, Tom Dwan, you know, Jason Kuhn. No, you can't. Like maybe you can in 10 years time if you sit down and grind and, you know, actually approach poker uh, and, and study the game and, you know, play for a living. But it's easier to sell the dream to new people that maybe haven't played poker before or have only like, recently got into it that, hey, this guy up until five minutes ago only had $1,500 total live earnings. He's now got six figures and he qualified into this 500 euro event for two euros. It's easier to sell. Mm. Absolutely. And plus, it's it's actually true. It could be you, it right? It, yeah. it totally it could. Because like, like you said, some of these people in those tournaments, they also don't have all that much experience. They, you know, don't, they're not real pros and uh, no. it could be you. That and being I, I, said, I mean, those still these huge events also are good, but they're for a way smaller audience, which yeah. kind of sell an idea of, oh, that's what it could be if I take it seriously, if I go all in on, okay, this is my life now. I'm going to study, I'm going to improve, etc. It sells the dream, but still, you know, could it be you? Maybe, 
but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and there's a lot of things that have to happen in between, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a different kind of dream and it's a very small, very small group of people who are actually interested in that dream, you know? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's the end boss. It's the end level. Alex Foxen staring you down at the 10K WPT five diamonds, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and we've, we've talked about rounders or, or rather you talked about rounders, how it was an inspiration for you, right? Mm. So this is the sort of, you know, uh, Johnny Chan against uh, uh, Seidel, right? Type of thing, you know, l- looking yeah. up to this and then saying, oh, you know, I'm going to go to the you know, main event and it's going to be me, except it's on a completely different scale because main event with a 10K buy and it's still attainable for a lot of people. Whereas, yeah. you know, go sit down for the one drop or something. Well, you know, that's, that's not going to happen anytime soon for, um, for most of the people. This is the thing that you you mentioned in terms of like the dream and entertainment is is something that I tried to transition into my actual commentary as well. And I've received a lot of you know positive comments about my commentary. I'm you know getting more and more events you know, covering like the Galphon Challenge, one of the biggest events of well the last like ten years in my opinion, um, to kind of get that gig is, is huge for me and I'm obviously doing something right but a lot of the criticism that I get about my commentary and I know other commentators that have received similar criticism is how technical we go into things in the commentary booth you know how much detail we want to break down a hand with and I have always tried to not go into any detail, not any detail whatsoever. You know, I'll break down a hand every now and then and just give my opinion on things. But when you look at the people who are watching poker for entertainment purposes and you sit down and ask them what their preferences would be and you've just got some GTO wizard, like say, okay, well, solve a bets one third on this flop and, you know, we should be 2Xing this turn because it just hits our range more than I, I don't, I honestly don't think there are that many people that want that. And a lot of the criticism that I have got have been from pros that like, Oh, you're boring. (laughs) You know, like you're not breaking down hands or whatever, Mm -hmm. but then the flip side to it, which is just like, I still find it insane is that there have been streams for some of the more prestigious events that I've covered, like, you know, WSOP main, 100k high roller 25k high rollers where i've called in you know like some timer into the booth jack sinclair into the booth and we've just gone ham with the analysis like we've just like looked at a hand like david peters against adrian mateus or whatever and we're like okay right well solver does this cool and then i'll get texts afterwards like what the fuck are you doing i'm like what do you mean why are you giving away free information I'm like, what do you mean why am i giving away free information like you just can't win with everyone <laughs> And it's it can you can either let it eat you up, you know, as a commentator, and be like, okay, well, it just looks like I can't please anyone, you know. I try and have fun with the chat, you know, just like mess around, trolling, and you know, not focus too much on the action. Only jump into it when there's a big hang going on, or you do the opposite and you ignore the chat and you break down hands and try and be as technical as possible. And then you've got other pros texting you like. Henry, shut the fuck up. Like you're, you're, you're being too technical. 
you're making too much sense. You're giving away too much information. You know, you're, you're teaching people how to get good at poker. And I've honestly, I've got screenshots on my phone. I'm not going to call anyone out, but of people telling me to not do it. So I'm at a point now where I'm like, I don't know what to do. And thankfully, I was watching Nick Shulman the other day uh, covering the Super High Roller Bowl um, on Party Poker TV. And there were people complaining about Nick's commentary. And that just reminded me, I was like, look, if there are people complaining about Nick's commentary and Shulman is the GOAT, no questions asked, like the guy is just the best commentator, in, well, in my opinion, I shouldn't really just like throw that statement out there, but in my opinion, he's the best. If there are still people that aren't happy with what he's doing, then I've got nothing to worry about because there's obviously just going to be people that are always unhappy with certain commentator. Mm. Yeah, that's that's so true. You can't please everyone. That's that's yeah. definitely the case. Yeah, uh, for sure. And I was on receiving that end of that as well. Obviously, you know, joined you in the commentary booth a couple of times. Joined uh, Tuckman. Jo- uh, joined um, Brian Pellegrino. Um, yeah. I'm missing some people. I've I've joined uh, I joined two other people, but anyway, like it's a long list of people that I joined, and it's different type of commentary with everyone you know because some people yeah. try to ask me more questions about the technical stuff you know and some people try to steer away from that and exactly like you said you know we would have comments in the chat or later on you know and you can't please everyone like sometimes it would be oh you guys not even talking about the hand this is bullshit right. then yeah. oh you're 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 talking too much about the hand and i would get although i stopped getting these messages but in the beginning i would get uh, a lot of people even some of the high stakes people reach out to me and say, listen, what are you doing? Like yeah. sharing the free information, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know what's your opinion on that, but like information <sighs> is abundant. Mm-hmm. Lack of information is not what's stopping people from becoming great at poker. You know, just because I share even more information doesn't mean that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I would be like the best teacher in the world if from like, you know, 40 hours of commentary or whatever, you know, I could like all of a sudden there's an army of complete crushers. That's not what, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. I mean, you can put all of the information out there. People are lazy people. There's so many aspects to poker. It's not only about making good decisions. There's so many things. That's why I keep talking about these things on, on the podcast because I want to help people. I want, I've seen Let's put it this way. I've seen some of my friends waste years of their life doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. Uh, If only they had better judgment at some point. If only they knew some of the aspects of mental game. How important are some of those things? How important is bankroll management? How important is game selection, etc., etc.? All the soft aspects of poker. You know, creating a balance in your life. Because let's face it, like even if you're the most successful poker player in the history of poker, if you're miserable in your day-to-day, what's the point? Yeah, right? that's, I couldn't have put it better myself, honestly. And I, I'm assuming you've been in both spots where I, I know for me that there have been points in my career, even up until recently, where I've had the most amount of money that I've ever had in my entire life, but I've been miserable. Or then, you know, I've gone on a downswing 
and you know lost half my bankroll but i've been the, the happiest that i've ever had because of you know looking after my mental health with friends and family and making sure that you know the the poker and life ratio is is balanced um I, i'd be really interested you know the viewers that do watch this for them to maybe give their opinion on what they feel commentary should be and i know there's no definitive answer as you said you know you can't please everyone but it is something that i'm passionate about and it's something that i do want to continue doing um yeah, hopefully I, I keep getting the offers that i've been getting um over the last you know year and a half two years for these events because for me the way that i've started treating commentary and i know we were talking about it before and um but before we went live is i just really want it to be a place that people can come and hang out and just have fun and ask questions troll me you know talk about my voice or my face or whatever it is like I was saying yeah, how thick skinned I've I've got recently and well not even recently, just in general I'm pretty thick skinned because you do get called every name under the sun, unfortunately, uh, when you're doing commentary and you've got thousands and thousands of viewers. But my point is, is I just want people to come in and be like, oh, Henry and so and so are doing commentary. This is gonna be fun. They're gonna be, you know, throwing jabs at each other, trolling each other, they're gonna be interacting with the chat. We're going to jump into a few big hands every now and then, but it's not going to be one of them streams where, and again, I don't want to you know, throw shade on anyone, um, but you get some people that because they get offered a gig, because they get called into the commentary booth, they have this sense of authority where they will go into the commentary booth and they will break down hands from a technical point of view. And it's, their word or the highway. It's like, listen, I got fucking invited into the commentary booth. Therefore, I'm the professional. You know, I'm the one that knows it all. You guys should just like shut the fuck up and uh, like just listen to what I'm saying. And I don't want that. And I, and I, I don't think that's the way that, that commentary should be approached. Um, I think people should be allowed to voice their opinions uh, freely, like freedom of speech, you know, if I break down a hand history and someone comes in, in a, obviously in a productive way, you're going to get idiots that are just like, Henry, what the fuck are you talking about? You're completely wrong. But if someone actually comes in with a counter argument and said, well, actually, Henry, what do you think about using this sizing on the turn? Or what, what do you think about that bluff catch on the river? I'm never going to shut someone down. I'm never going to be like, no, dude, fuck off. I'm the commentator. You're just watching. If anything, it's going to excite me even more that someone's like, come to me with a new perspective. I'm like, wow, actually, yeah, I never even thought about that. That's really interesting. Like, what do we do in that spot with that versus that sizing? Or, you know, do we really want to be using this hand as a bluff catcher in this river spot? Like, I love engaging with people because it's how I got to where I am now was, you know, I was taught from a young age, you know, you're born with two ears and one mouth. And it's to listen. And I've got to where I have in poker by getting rid of my ego. It took me a long time to do that, but getting rid of my ego and listening to other people's perspectives and my peers, you know, because you can always learn something. Mm. And even what you said about, you know, the deep analysis and some people being categorical about it or otherwise, to be honest, like for a commentary, like if people 
watch it with the purpose of, okay, this is like a coaching session. Now this yeah. guy's going to be analyzing the hands. I'm taking notes. So he better, he better like do his thing. Right? You're in the wrong place, right? You the the, the, the viewer place, is right? in the wrong place because the, the time and a place, right? So get, get, get out. You know, get a perspective. Line up to you know, bluff the spot or run it once and eat or whatever. You know, exactly. Like just... right. Get a coach. Get a, with something. You know. And the, yeah. If, like, to me, the commentary thing, the watching something, it's supposed to be engaging. You're supposed to, as a viewer, you're supposed to be engaging in what's going on. You know, the little banter, the little this, the little that, and and also like. You know, before I did the commentary, and the ones that I did for Galfan Challenge are obviously paling in comparison to the real work that you guys are doing, right? Because we did like maximum five hours, you know, and I'm like exhausted after five hours. After three, my brain is shutting down. Like I, I've never talked so much and, you know, without pause. This is crazy. And you guys go for like eight, 12 hours and it's crazy. Yeah. But to think, like when I experienced it for myself, and I'm not a big viewer of any like i to be honest i never watch any events i i was a big fan of high stakes poker i I was a fan of uh, poker after dark but i'm not i'm not a fan of tournaments i'm not gonna watch that too much right yeah. but when i was in the booth myself and i'm doing the commentary i realized like jesus you know five hours even if you would try to analyze every hand really yeah. really deep and like give great advice etc it's not it's not possible. Like who can do, you know, just like a full blown, really good analysis for eight, 12 hours or something like you guys do. And the problem with the viewers is they tune in for like 20 minutes and then they expect, well, you know, I'm here only for 20 minutes. He, he better do his shit. You know, this hand, I need to know, like, what is the sizing, et cetera, et cetera. And, then, and it's crazy. And that's one of the reasons why you will never be able to please everyone because some people are actually there sticking around for all 12 hours it's in the background somewhere they're doing their having their life and you know there's a bit of commentary and they sort of watch it bits and pieces right there's going to be some people in in there in and out for like 15 minutes and they expect like this is what i'm here for and then then it's not that it's a it's it's a hell of a job man as well you know like they come in what's the update how much is fill up today uh, this time they're like update update commentators update it's like all right dude like you tuned in for five minutes but listen i, I love them guys as well you know i need them mm. uh, you know they're, they're they're there and they they help promote the streams yeah. and the games but i think one of the best people um for commentary oh actually just quickly uh just talk about uh the galfon challenge and the mm-hmm. commentary that you did it was cards down dude like that's fucking impossible. That is close to an impossible task to dissect, you know, heads up PLO with cards. And if we could see one player's cards and then a board, holy shit, I will happily break down hand after hand after hand after hand for you because I can at least see four cards. I can be like, right, okay, well, with this hand, we've got these blockers, but you know, you know the drill. You know, if you know four cards, it's cards down, guys. Like. Give us a break! Like these guys are at the top of their like game to even attempt to, you know, guess what Phil is block betting river with that is then like all of a sudden getting like check piled on after it is checked flop and turn 
or you know stuff like that like it's just spots that you know you have to have spent a lot of time in the solver streets doing um but i just wanted to give a massive shout out to, to jamie kirsten because i think the reason she is one of the greatest commentators um especially the work that she does in america is because she does exactly what you just said you know she engaged with the chat and people don't want to come to a stream and be made to feel like they're stupid. People don't want to come in and, and listen to commentators throwing out all these fancy words and, you know, just over overdoing it, you know, just, it's just too much for people sometimes. And that is why Jamie is one of the best people for WSOP. You know, she covers a lot of the, the World Series events. It's because ESPN and WS, WSOP understand that the majority of viewers that watch the shows are people that play poker as a hobby. And they tune in because they just have a lot of like um, passion for the game, but not on a professional level. And Jamie does a great job at keeping those guys engaged by talking about certain things, but keeping it simple so that people aren't walking away from a stream and just be like, fuck, I feel like an idiot. What, what is, you know, what do they mean by frequency in, in that sport? Like, I, I don't know what frequency means. You know, if you're a one-two grinder, you know, that plays poker once a week um, just to, you know, just to enjoy yourself, you, they don't want to hear about frequencies and shit like that. I mean, come on, man. Surely people can understand that. Mm. Yeah, and actually, now that you mentioned Jamie, it was uh, I, I tuned in on um, the last day of the challenge against Action Freak. You guys were yeah. doing it together with Jamie, and yeah, it was engaging. I tuned in as in like, okay, I'm, I need an update. I need to see the score, and then I sort of stuck around for you know quite a while because I was like, okay, this is fun because you guys started, yeah. you know. There was she, some banter, like she was making fun of your English accent, you know, and yeah. then, you know, the chat kind of went that way. Then she's talking about her dog, you know, all that, all that stuff. And this is awesome, you know, because even I, like, I really just went for like an update. Okay, I need to see the score. Like, it's pretty clear that Phil's going to win. So let's just double check, you know, there's a couple hours left. So if, are things safe? And, you know, and I stick around because, yeah, this is awesome. If I tuned in and it was like, okay, so the frequency is just, okay, you lost me there. You lost yeah. me. But then, so, again, it's just me. Obviously, you know, people are different. The people going to seek out different commentary. But the, the beauty of it is there's a lot of commentary out there. Like, you, you, can, you can go ahead and choose something else. So if you are so doing the WSOP and you're doing it for the audience, which is the recreational players, well, then that's yeah. the audience that you work for. If you're a pro, well, you know what? Get together with your pro guys and friends and sit together and you know, do the commentary <laughs> yourself. Analyze the hands all day if you want to. Do a Skype session, you know, if you want to look at Monka spots or uh, yeah, yeah. spots. But uh, well, what I took away from that run, Chucks, is so you tuned in to get an update because you had money on Phil. Is that what you're saying? Like, no, okay, no, not at go. all. Cro Cross-booked him against Action Free. <laughs> not at I'm all. Joking. No, that, that was not the reason. But um, <laughs> no, I was just rooting for Phil. You know, in the first challenge, it was hard for me to root for anyone. I was being as neutral as I can because obviously I know, I know yep. Vinny. Uh, I know him for 
quite a while. And uh, Phil is an awesome guy. I like Phil a lot, right? So it, it was sort of like, ah, oh, damn it. I want... So, so to be honest, what happened was like a dream scenario of, you know, this roller coaster, the, the, the game that's going to go down in history as one of the most interesting swings, you know, publicly played. Uh, so it was all, all like as if it's scripted to perfection. And then in the end, it's just, you know, the, the little, little stone sort of tipped the whole scale in one direction. You know, just one board um, where just a, kind of a setup of a board tipped the whole thing. The yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Thing. Corner pocket. Yeah, it's crazy to think that after so many hands, you know, it comes down to that. And uh, it was beautiful. It was it was so much fun to watch. And uh, you it know, was. and and also like the display from both players of how they handled it, like the way they both handled it, that is beautiful. And we all have so much to learn from it, right? It's like. I I don't know about you, but I feel like I've grown a bunch just since doing the commentary for the Galphon Challenge, um, mainly due to how Phil has publicly spoken about his mindset and just, you know, showing us how important it really is that, yes, you can study, yes, you can use solvers, yes, you can put in volume, but a lot of people neglect their mental health when it comes to poker. And I'm sure you can relate. I'm sure people that are watching this can relate. You know, there are so many times that I can recall where, you know, due to an outside factor, maybe an argument with a friend or family or a breakup or something, I've then played poker and clearly not been playing my A game because of my mental health or where my mind's been at, at the time but refusing to take a break and to step away and to get into a better mind frame. Um, so I'm hoping that the main thing that people take away from the Galphon challenge is, okay, not only through having an insane work ethic, you know, you can get to these stakes one day and become one of the world's best. You know, that's evident. We all know that, but something new, or not, it's obviously not new to, you know, professionals that have been around for a long time, but maybe something new that has been highlighted by this challenge um, from Phil is the importance of surrounding yourself by like-minded people and, you know, uh, having a solid support network around you that can help you with your mental, uh, your mental game as well as your poker game. I think a lot of people neglect it. I think it is, for me, one of the most important things about my life you know, money aside, poker aside, if if I'm in in a good place mentally, then you know it's, it's, that's a happy life. I couldn't give two shits whether I've got one k in the bank account or 150 k in the bank account. So as you know, yeah, I'm mentally sound, and my friends and family are mentally sound. Mm. I want to add two things here because uh, the way how the challenge happened publicly, this huge swing. You know, the huge 900,000 euros, so over a million dollars in the red, come all the way back to zero mm. in a span of, what was it? Was it like 20,000, 25,000 hands? Or I think it was oh, 25,000, yeah. right? 25,000 hands, yeah. So in a span of that, you have a 
you know, a million swing one way and then the way back. So for people to see it publicly, for a lot of people, I hope it shows that, listen, these swings are, that wasn't even that extraordinary. It's an unlikely event, but it's not like, oh my God, how did this happen? Well, guess what? It happened many times before. Yeah. It happened to Venny before. It happened to Phil before. You know, it's happened to anyone who's been around long enough. Right, so I think that is a good thing from that challenge that to a lot of people it will illustrate and hopefully with that, you know, the bankroll management is sort of the importance of it is once again stressed. And I hope, well, that's definitely a positive thing, you know, because, well, it's probably going to help a few people along the way. And mm-hmm. the second point I wanted to make, which, because um, as you said, like so many people would... Uh, have the wrong mindset going into the game. Let's say you had, like you said, you had a breakup, you had some sort of event in your life. You, you were just angry, you just had an argument, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people actually just jump in in the games. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the question is, why? Why do you do it? Why did you join the game? And it's so easy because like for a lot of people, and that's a huge leak in the mental game of just basically, yeah. do you know what? My life sucks for whatever reason. I'm angry at everyone. Let's play poker. What do you think is going to happen? Like, is it ever like whoever? Like, when did it ever work out? You know, even if you're uh, running good, you're going to be still pissed about it. You know, because you're yeah. still not enjoying it. And then why are you doing it? And it's coming back to like, okay, I can't take days off. You know, I'm a professional. <laughs> I'm supposed to play. Oh, you know yeah. what? You're supposed to put your mind straight first, and then. And then go ahead, yeah, play. But uh, sure, you can't always just play only when you're super happy and fully fit and um, you know all that stuff. If if that was the case, well, then you would play very rarely because, well, the reality is, you know, if you're gonna try to grind almost every day, well, some days you just don't feel it, but you still have to do it. But some days you do have to take a break, step away. Don't use poker as a sort of mechanism to fix your life because it won't fix your life yes it is so important what you just mentioned and again that is something that i try to bring to the table in commentary is just like be completely vulnerable with the viewers talk about all of my fuck-ups. Look, I'm not claiming to, you know, I'm, I'm very honest about the stakes that I grind. I'm honest that, you know, I, I, if I have to drop down to 50 PLO or 100 PLO to rebuild my fundamentals, you know, like, I will do that because I've completely removed, oh, no, not completely, because that's, that's a lie, but I've removed a lot of ego from the game. And you just have to teach people these lessons and I think that's a huge asset to a commentator if you can bring that and just be honest with the chat because the people watching can then relate. They can then relate to, oh, wow, yeah. I remember that time that I played angry after having an argument with my boyfriend or girlfriend and, you know, I ended up losing money. Wow, like, I didn't think that, you know, because not, not, everyone can connect the, the, not everyone can connect the dots all of the time. You know, sometimes it just does take, it takes a little bit of guidance. We, we, we're not all born, you know, all knowing, you know, like I said earlier on, you know, speaking to your network and getting a different perspective and opinion is massive because you're willing to learn. So, for, yeah, so like you mentioned, the, the swing, 
to see two goats like Phil and Venny go for a swing like that over such a short sample. I hope that a lot of people that are going through down swings at the moment or even going on up swings uh, take away from that, that, right, wow, well, if two of the best PLO players in the world are going through swings like that, then, you know, I'm ultimately going to have that at some point in my career. You get some sun runners, <laughs> you know, that, that seem to just go on like constant eaters and then they retire at age 28 and we never hear from them again. But yeah. Uh, it's unlikely and then the other one as well is like you said mental health and just realizing that it's okay to take a day off but I can empathize with people that beat themselves up for taking a day off because I've been there and I've done that and Mm. you know it is tough to sometimes detach yourself when you're supposedly a professional poker player which would mean that you know you want to be putting in volume and earning money because that is your job and the second that you relax or a friend invites you out for a drink you feel guilty that you're not at the tables or you're in bed watching a movie and you're like ah oh, uh, should i be doing this yes yes man just remove your mind from the game for a couple of days for a week and i didn't mention it earlier on um, but when you first brought up the subject about taking a month off and i mentioned earlier that the back end of last year and the beginning of this year was my most successful uh, time frame to date so far in terms of you know money made and also life EV in terms of travels. Uh, in August, I I honestly was it, sorry in July of last year I just collapsed mentally. I just, I had been doing commentary nonstop at Kings Resort and we're talking 12, 15 hour streams five days a week I was mentally exhausted I was also trying to put in volume live whilst I was at the casino and I just broke down I had an absolute mental block called up a couple of high school buddies from Bulgaria booked an Airbnb and didn't play a single hand of poker for about a month and a half from like the beginning of July until almost the end of August of last year and then I came back and I was raring to go. It was WSOP circuit at Kings, WSOP Europe around the corner. And yeah, I just came back fresh, clean mind, you know, been chilling on the beach, hanging out with friends, just taking my mind off poker. And I don't know if it was a coincidence, you know, that I took the break and then I just went on what, you know, is an insane heater over 300 hours of live play you know like i don't think it's sustainable to be winning 72 big blinds every hour but that's the the rate that it happened at. for for whatever reason maybe you know, the rng gods were on my side for for taking a break and uh and stepping away yeah important like you said with any job you need to to chill out every now and then yeah and i do believe that the break definitely helped you with uh i was i was buzzing to go the like second I, yeah like the same i walked into that casino again and you know like made my first deposit and withdrew chips it was like right let's go fuck some shit up you know let's go play some poker it's been a while it's time to stack some people again <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and another thing i just want to because we we're basically wrapping up here we've been uh at it for a while people are going to be 
uh, at the loss of what exactly is this show about? Because we covered some some wide ranging topics, right? Friends, you know? But I think you know one thing that you sort of mentioned, and I just want to reiterate because I want to. That's something that I like about the work that you do, right? And which is that you share your personal stories. You know, like mm-hmm. the story, for example, that game in New York, right? The first time I heard it, I was like, wow, I'm so happy that you bring it up on the, on stream. People need to hear this, right? And some of the shady game stories, all of those stories are important. People need to hear it. People can learn from it. That being said, like, I know how how things are. For example, the, the New York game, right? Okay, for some people, it's going to be like, oh, right, well, don't do that. Yeah. For others, it's going to be, oh, awesome. Let's go and do that. Let's go and try that, right? This is what's poker going to be about. This is rounders, <laughs> you know, let's let's go for it. And it is what it is. Everybody's going to give take their own, have their own takeaways, so to say, right? Because yeah. that was an interesting... I don't know if you if you read now there's a wonderful book called Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. It has nothing to do with poker. It's not about poker, it's about investment banking. It's an okay. old book. He wrote it in um early nineties or something. Hilarious. Mark, like Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis. Mark and Lewis. it's called Liar's Poker. Okay, uh, it's you. a great book. One of my favorite books by this author and the author in general is an amazing guy. I love his work. I love his style of writing. You know, he's he's the author behind uh, Moneyball, you know, which the movie oh, really? was made about, you know. So it's that type of uh, nonfiction, you know, journalistic approach to investigating okay. stories. You know, he wrote uh, great books about the financial crash, etc., etc. So an incredible author. Anyway, so I, I recently listened to an interview of him and he mentioned that he wrote Liar's Poker as a cautionary tale against the greed and the banking industry and the investment banking specifically. So a cautionary tale to perhaps allow some people to make better decisions and not go that route. Don't go into the Wall Street. Don't do this, right? Mm. Well, what happened in reality was quite the opposite because he started getting calls from young guys of like, oh, this is amazing. I love what you're saying. Like, how do I get in? Do you have any advice? Like, how do I go? Like, what should I say in the interviews? You don't know how people are going to, you know, what are they going to take away from what you're saying? You know, with every story that you you tell, there's going to be people who view it from one perspective, another perspective, depending on where they are in their life and what lens they're looking through. But still, I think the fact that you're sharing these stories while doing the commentary is what makes your commentary great. You know, because again, people can relate, people can connect and it's engaging. You know, because those hands, I mean, let's face it, even, even if you watch a hand which is the most beautiful hand of poker, whatever that means, you know, there's no such thing. It's what is a beautiful hand of poker? Like, I mean, let's, anyway, oh, let's no, imagine man. there Triple is a thing like this. People, you know? <laughs> let's let's <laughs> imagine there is a thing like this. Are you really going to remember it like three years from now? Are you going to talk over dinner like, oh, remember that hand which they like yeah. played, this guy played against that? That was a crazy hand. Well, maybe some people maybe will have these mm-hmm. moments, right? But a story of the New York underground game and the graffiti door and the two bouncers and, uh, you know, a cage and how it looks like rounders. This is a story that's going to stick. 
And this is the story that people will remember when Henry Kilbane is in the booth. You have a personality there with like, oh, this is the guy who is lucky to be in the booth because let's face it, he was knocking on the wrong door in the wrong city to be knocking on that door. So, you know, but that's great. Yeah. So I just wanted to point it out. You know, yeah, I, re- I really appreciate that, man. I honestly do. It's it's something that I'm I'm still new to. Um, you know, like even with the events that I've covered, I could have only dreamt about covering 100k's with you know the best of the best in the world at a table that I'm doing commentary on. But it's it's a work in progress, um, and. I'm always open to constructive criticism and feedback from from anyone, even Twitch chat. You know, and I, I know they don't believe me, but I honestly am because I'm passionate about it. It motivates me to get better at poker. And if just one person tunes in and can walk away feeling like they've learned something or they've realized because of stories that I've told, you know, flaws in themselves or things that they need to fix at home in order to, to achieve, you know, not necessarily their dreams, but things that they've been working towards, you know, with the systems that we were talking about building earlier on, then I've done my job, you know, and I know that I can't please everyone when it comes to commentary. Like I said, you know, from, from pros and, you know, some of the, the most elite players in the world, I've got half of them telling me to shut the fuck up whenever I start, you know, breaking down hands because I'm giving away too much free information. And then, you know, I've got half of them telling me that, you know, Henry, why aren't you breaking down hands? Um, That used to get to me. That used to eat me up a little bit. But now I'm just just willing to listen to everyone. And I'm I'm still working towards finding that balance. And hopefully one day I'll I'll get there. I don't know if I ever will. I don't even think Nick Shulman has, you know, like I said, um, the other day I was watching some of his work and and there were people not happy with the way that he was commentating. I was like, well, I don't need to worry then run chucks, man. Like if if Nick Shulman can't please anyone and you know, then there's, there's no hope. There's no hope for, for the rest of us, I guess. Yeah, well, that's, gonna... that's true. Oh well, Henry, thank you for for this conversation. I I really enjoyed yeah, it, man. And and funny enough, we we also talked one hour off off screen, basically off the record, which is uh, which is crazy. We should have recorded some of that as well, but uh, oh, it was so much fun, man. There's there are a few bits in that one hour that we we can't make public. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> Couple of things that we, yeah, I'll just it's like I'll never get hired again, basically. <laughs> man, it's Rancho, listen, and then to everyone uh, like watching your content, um, there's just so much to learn from people like you in the industry. And I don't know if you get told this and whether you care about getting told it, but you bring so much to the table in terms of value and wisdom and it doesn't go unnoticed mate and i really appreciate you not only inviting me onto the podcast but answering my my stupid questions you know there's a lot to be learned from from people like you so so thank you for for having me and everything that you do for the community mate honestly it's been a pleasure oh man thank you thank you for the kind words and uh 
keep up the good work, man. I Thanks, am looking man. forward try. to to looking, uh, you know, to watching some of your commentary again. Be back soon. Be back All soon. Right. Well, bye. Peace out, guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to get regular email from me where I share my key takeaways from each latest episode, go to runchickspodcast.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, I would really appreciate if you subscribe to my channel on YouTube and rate my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other platform where you normally listen to the podcasts. This really helps.